In this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Daraj Nalapadula, an incoming doctor, doctor, MD, PhD student at UC Davis. We talk about the importance of following your curiosity, why life is just too short to spend on things you don't love, and we do a deep dive on research he's actually conducted on real UCLA students. It investigates growth mindsets and internal locuses of control, and he finds that these mental shifts may serve as a strong driver of closing higher education gaps for traditionally marginalized communities. Please DM me on Instagram to let me know how you enjoyed this episode. Here goes. Let's finish strong, publish in JAMA. Flex on the world, motor neuron gamma. Take your time, cook some dinner. Type 1 fibers, we ain't no sprinters. Yo, let's get it. Mike Will made it. Fire. Hey there, podcast. This is Michael. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pass the Mic, where I have the pleasure of sharing the narratives of imminent or current medical professionals. In short, my job is to build you a community of mentors from the folks that have come before you. This episode is a wonderful reunion because we have actually my second year Reber Vista rendezvous partner in crime roommate, Diraj Nalapatula. That's D-H-I-R-A-G, Diraj, space, N-L-N-A-L-L-A-P-O-T-H-U-L-A, Nalapatula. Daraj graduated in 2019 from UCLA with a degree in microbiology, immunology, and molecular genetics. I'm ecstatic that I can confidently say that Daraj has chosen his home for his medical education, and he's earned a well-deserved seat up north in UC Davis's MD-PhD program. Daraj is going to be a doctor-doctor. We'll get into all the academic things that make Daraj awesome. There's a long laundry list of things, but I wanted to spend a moment to note the things that you won't know unless you had the opportunity to live with the guy for a year. Daraj is a guy who claims free Chipotle guac and chips on likeacoupon.com. They have pretty good deals, and every time Daraj claims it, I get a Facebook notification. He's also the guy that, and I quote, enjoys the misanthropy of Gregory House the brilliance of the New York Times, the addiction of sports, and the idealism of cinema. That is straight from his bio from Globe Med, uh, an organization that he's involved with. This man actually predates the statistics era in sports and can probably tell you Barry Bonds' batting average in 1975. I don't know if Barry Bonds actually played in 1975. Or Wilt Chamberlain's free throw percentage. You can find Daraj if you want to say hello ask a question or ask him how strongly he feels about Stephen A. Smith on Twitter. That's at Diraj N30. That's D-H-I-R-A-J-N30. I'm personally so grateful to carve out a nice reunion with him today. Diraj, thanks for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me, Michael. That was very professional. Yeah. I love doing these intros because too often we accumulate a lot of accomplishments um, throughout the duration of our lives. And there's never really a point where someone just sits down and like spits them back at you. You know, I haven't really said anything about the stuff that you did in undergrad because I know we'll get to that soon, but I think that um, it's always nice to, I, I mean, at least all the podcast guests that I've had on thus far, there was like, man, that's a pretty well-researched intro. I might, uh, I might steal that from my own LinkedIn or something. Yeah, no, I agree. It's I was I, I don't know if I was listening to a 
talking to a friend about this before, or if I was kind of watching a YouTube video that covered it, everything's kind of been gelling together the past three months. Mm. But whatever it was, was talking about how we always like, are always looking to the next thing and we always, and we kind of tend to forget to look back and reflect on our past accomplishments or not even accomplishments, but past events in our lives to construct some kind of meaningful chronology of the events and kind of gain some control over what we can expect from our present and future. And I realized that a lot of that, when you start reflecting on it, you realize how many things you've, you've actually have done in your life, regardless of where you are. And it's kind of like, when somebody does read it back to you, it does kind of like feel like, whoa, I did all that. Like, really? Like, it feels like not, it feels, I don't know, like less than a lifetime ago that you did that. But when you read it back, it's like, wait, I did all that. And like, what, the last four years? What? Yeah. Yeah. I like that insight because too often we hear advice that is so black and white. And I'll give you an example of the thing that you were just talking about. Everyone or a lot of people in the space will say, only look ahead. Because when you look behind, um, you regret things, you want to change things, but you can't change them. They're in your past. So the only thing you should do is look ahead, live in the present or look ahead. The past is something you cannot change, but I like that there's nuance. And I think that the truth is always in the grays between the blacks and the whites. And you mentioned there's a, there's a good reason to look behind. It's to celebrate the things that you have done and to find and to kind of relish in those accomplishments or even those struggles, because there's a lot of things that we don't notice in our day to day that we can, that we can kind of pick up on when we spend some time to reflect on our past. So I like that. And I also like, and I like it for its like face value, but I also like it because it is one good example of the fact that the truth is always in the gray. And I don't like when people give advice that is so black and white. No, I agree. It's a, it's that, that, that sums things up very eloquently, more eloquently than I would have put it for sure. But, but yeah, it's, it's funny that we talk about this because I remember like one of my favorite classes at, at UCLA during my undergrad, because I was recently like ranking like what were my favorite classes that I took in the last four years. And within my top five is definitely the, like the soul, like I took three writing classes, of course, just to complete the requirements. But one of the classes that I took wasn't like a classical GE, it was like English 91C, it was like introduction to fiction, like a very, like a very, very English, like English majors type of class right Mm -hmm. and throughout the course we had to like read I think like eight books eight different like you know contemporary or you know traditionally well-read or well-known fiction books and you know these are titles that everyone's probably heard of to some extent you know Frankenstein um, Christmas Carol um, you know things of that uh, things of that nature up to the lighthouse by Virginia Woolf and you know all these like one thing that I really appreciated about that class was the professor, like, I guess, relating it back to like English classes in high school, you're always taught to think in a very, I guess, black and white way about literature, I feel like maybe it's because like, we didn't have the lived experiences yet to like, have like a more of a meta appreciation of the literature we were reading and the big global events that these things might connect to or the historical events and whatnot. So I guess in that sense, it's kind of acceptable, but at the same time, I felt a little bit shorted short I felt a bit a bit on the short end of my high school English classes because I didn't feel like I could fully be creative enough to reflect on like you know worldly issues and meta issues within literature and what's great about that class that I took at at UCLA that English class was that we kind of got into like the purpose of fiction or what fiction Mm -hmm. is supposed to be doing or this idea of fictionality right what 
from what I understand, it's, I'm a year removed from it and I'm not an English major, so I'm trying to like riff off of this a little bit, but it's, it's the idea of what defines fiction and what makes fiction fiction itself. And as weird and meta as that sounds, it kind of allowed us to kind of look at what the characters in the book were doing in relation to like, I guess, kind of the broader picture of their lives in the book. So for example, an example of this is like whenever you see a character in the book reading, it's always about that character trying to learn more about themselves and understand what makes them more human because I guess reading is such a quintessential part of what we can do. And it kind of is a way for us to not only reflect on our future, but reflect on our past and kind of apply various instances of what you read to different elements of your life, past, current, future. And in doing so, you kind of get a chance to reflect on your memories and build this meaningful, meaningful chronology. And, I, and one thing that I'll never forget from that class is how we were reading this book called Never Let Me Go, which is about these, like, I don't want to give too much away because it's a really good book, but the memories are a very important part of that book and, and about the character's development and how the, the biggest takeaway I got from that was how the memories that you have in the past are very much what define who you are and what we are as human beings. Because nobody, I don't know if there's another species out there that's able to like create, to remember their past and create like a meaningful narrative of the events in their lives, to make sense of it, to adjust future expectations, to build motivations for the future. So I think what you're saying about like this whole black and white concept kind of got turned on its head for me in undergrad a little bit, just because you were, for, I was, I guess that English class kind of encapsulates it a little bit, how we we're forced to like, not forced, but we were encouraged or given the tools to like explore beyond just like the what's immediately like, in the text as like rhetorical analysis, but looking beyond to how the text relates to, I don't know, the broader narrative that we use to define you know, who we are. I was very meta and kind of rambled there, but. No, no, I thought that was very useful. And I think that we don't get enough humanities education as aspiring physicians or aspiring physician scientists. And uh, unfortunately I was kind of young when I, uh, when I had to go through some of my writing courses for the English uh, requirement for medical school, I didn't appreciate just how valuable some of those courses can be. I mean, clearly you gleaned a lot from your one fiction course, but that's something that like I would have definitely strayed away from when I was an undergrad. I would have I thought, man, that course is extremely over my head. Uh, I'm sure I can learn a lot, but... I've got three other science courses to kind of balance and all the other extracurriculars. I don't know if I can handle stretching, but I think at the end of the day and you exemplify this and and my girlfriend also is a big humanities uh, buff and she's going into medicine as well, but everyone ends up handling it in their own way, but it ends up getting handled all all, um, all the more. And I think that it makes people definitely better off for engaging in uh, in a discipline that is not science. I mean, there's so much science in medicine, man. You're going to be swamped yeah. by it from research to the clinic. Uh, so it's nice to get a different perspective. So I appreciate that you still remember that class from long, long, long ago. Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to when you had to read eight books in a quarter. You know, that kind of, that kind of sticks with you. But um, yeah, never mind. I'm going to take it back. Everything I said, I've never taken <laughs> No, it's funny you mentioned that you were when you were talking about, oh, I was too young when I took those writing classes and stuff. It, ironically, I didn't like 
plan on taking them really late. I was just really lazy about when I wanted to take my, my English classes. And I just kind of staved them off to the end of college in my senior year. And I guess it wasn't the worst thing, actually, to be able to do that. Like, I guess I had gained some maturity at the time and writing was a lot easier. And I always enjoyed writing. So, but I, on that, but to your point about how we don't really get, especially in undergrad, we don't get a lot of that. I guess humanities doesn't become a big focus of your pre-med life, I guess, unless you are in a major or pick up a minor that like kind of drives you to focus more on the humanities side of medicine, of science, of really anything. So for me, I actually, just to add a little bit to my intro, I guess I also minored in global health. So that was a very like important minor for me to pick up more on the, I guess I always wanted to learn more about the humanities side of medicine. And I guess that was a good way to do it because I was involved with like a global health org on campus at UCLA. And it was kind of a nice compliment to that and definitely shaped my outlook on medicine beyond just like the biomedicine and the the intricate molecular pathways of, you know, your cell system. So that was, that was something I appreciated a lot. And I, did you, I mean, I don't know if some, that's something you can speak to as well when you, if, if you took any kind of humanities type coursework. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the three humanities courses that I took, one was a seminar on aging. It was part of my cluster. I took that as a freshman spring quarter. And then the other two courses I took was one, an intro to Buddhism and two, an intro to Scandinavian or Nordic cinema. And I would say I learned a lot. Um, and I'm sure if I thought a little bit more about it, I could pull some things that I learned from those courses that were applicable to medicine. But I think the more direct corollary, and I've, I've definitely found this uh, throughout my first year of medical school, especially when you're starting out and you don't know all the bugs and the drugs and the pathways and how everything works in the human body. The only, not the only, but the primary way you can be of use to a clinic is to be first and foremost, a strong communicator. I think that communicating with patients, what their next steps are, how to get to and from the clinic, whether it's what bus stops they need to take, when they need to leave their house. Um, things that you and I may think is kind of trivial, it's, it's pretty important for um, patient adherence and patient compliance because there's not a, because we always live in a bubble, right? We live in our student bubble. We think that everyone thinks the same way that we do. But when you go out and see these real patients, everyone has their own struggles. And, the, and being able to communicate what you need from a patient and being able to glean what patients need from you is an art. And I think I did not get that art with my scientific curriculum. And I had to learn it from my relationships, whether it was friendships with you or my relationships with my professors and faculty, or just practicing when seeing patients and, and making sure that that was a point of focus for me. Um, but I think people who lend themselves to humanities, especially humanities majors or people like you who have uh, a unique humanities spin, whether it's through the global health minor and, and, and courses that you took, those people are really good communicators, right? To be able to write, I think, is to be able to communicate effectively. Um, if you are able to clearly write, it means that in your head, you've organized your thoughts in a way that is comprehensible to other people. And I think that really translates when you open your mouth and you speak to a patient for the first or second or third or hundredth time. Um, it's difficult when you're a science major and you're tasked with remembering uh, 
ubiquitin one through 105 and all the other enzymes and where they are, right? That has nothing to do with communication. It has to do with systems. And I think science majors are good at um, visualizing systems, but I think the art of communication is something that is very, very undervalued in medicine. And um, especially when starting out, it is one of the critical driving points uh, as to your effectiveness in clinic. So I like that. And I, I, I would encourage anyone to, anyone who has the opportunity to seek out a more formal humanities education. It can be through the curriculum in your school. Uh, it can be through reading the New York Times and having discussions with pals that also read the New York Times. Um, but communication is developable. It's, a, it's, it's something that you can uh, get better at over time. You just need to want to and um, put the work into it. Yeah, I, I, I agree with pretty much all of that. And there was a false beat in there. Um, I will say, just as a side note, um, I would not put my, I would like to change my bio one more time and not include the brilliance of the New York Times in there because I am no longer a huge fan of the New York Times, I would say, oh, yeah. given uh, some of their recent um, shenanigans, to say the least. Uh, We'll have to. Um, so I, I mean, we could put in the brilliance of the Atlantic, the magazine. Okay. Although well, I wouldn't like, I wouldn't like to define myself necessarily as somebody that like hinges my personality on you know liking a news magazine of some kind. But you know, that's just a right. just a fun, just just a slight alteration I'd like to just throw in there. You know. Well, let's uh, let's get to know a little bit more about your personality and share it with whoever is listening. And to do so, I have a set of rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Sure, I'm not prepared. That's the way it should be. Diraj, where did you grow up? I grew up in San Jose, California, West San Jose, California, I should say. Mm. Diraj, what is your favorite quote? Oh my God. Oh man, this is tough. Probably something from like the, probably like the last line of Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro. It's a very, very good quote. I can't, I think I have the book somewhere. Should I find it? And read you it? should. I'm actually really um, curious. Oh my God. Let me, where do I, I don't see it. I don't see it. It's in my bookshelf somewhere. It's the last line of what? Of Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro. Never Let Me Go. This is really sketchy how we're looking this up. I usually like to support the authors, but I already bought the book once, so. Yeah, no, I'm sure we can find it on Amazon pretty Is this a movie? This is a book. This is the book I was referring to about memories. Right, but does it have a, a movie spinoff? It does, but the screenplay is different from the end of the book. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Okay, okay. Oh, here, here it is. I'll read it for you. There, there we go. The fantasy never got beyond that. Does that sound familiar? Yes. Okay, here's the quote. These are the lines of the novel occurring at the end of chapter 23, where Kathy describes the aftermath of Tommy's death. The fantasy never got beyond that. I didn't let it. And though the tears rolled down my face, I wasn't sobbing or out of control. I just waited a bit, then turned back to the car to drive off to wherever it was I was supposed to be. 
that was it. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty much it. Yeah, it's there's a little bit more before that, but people can people can look it up if they want to. But it's it's a very eloquent end to the book. And I guess one cool thing about Kazuo Ishiguro and his writing, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2017. He has a very like simplistic, minimalist style of writing, which makes it easy to read, but also makes it like, but it also kind of hides the the nuances of the message that he's trying to get out. But but anyway, we can keep going with the rapid fire. Don't want to get sidetracked too much. No, we'll, we'll touch base on that. I'm actually really interested in that. Daraj, what is one of your superpowers? Ooh. I don't know. Being able to watch movies back to back to back to back without stopping. Yeah, that is a superpower. I have personally witnessed that. And I cannot believe you do not move from your chair. You are an yeah, action. I, I, I just get lost in the film, lost in the sauce of the film. That's amazing. What is one of your favorite accomplishments? Oh man, now you're trying to make me like count myself a little bit. I'm usually like doing that. Um, That's what good hosts do. Um, I would say probably um, this uh, education research study that we did, um, this project that we did for higher education research at through UCLA's um, Life Sciences Corp division, we designed this curriculum or did we design this intervention that was meant to like improve students um, internal locus of control and instill a growth mindset in them and kind of synergize those two things together for them. And we were able to deliver that intervention entirely remotely. People are doing it. We got a great response rate from it and we were able to publish a paper recently about it. So I'd say that that's pretty meaningful just because it has a, it's something that I was able to actually see students like potentially benefit from. So I'd say that's pretty much, that's pretty high up there. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's actually the first thing that I want to discuss after the rapid fire. So we'll get there. Um, what is one thing you're challenged by right now? The imposter syndrome, big time. Um, I feel like just like one, having the next eight years kind of like out there for me and kind of like mapped out in a way. Um, but also just in general, going into a, a field in which there is well-beings are in your hand. And it's like, wait, I, I, you know, you had a, I kind of envisioned this for a while, you know, it's like, you know, I'm going to go to med school. This is going to be great. This will be fun. Um, it's the career that I want. And then now that it's like right there and about to start it, it's like, am I really, like, how did I get here? Like, am I really, is, am I the right person to be able to, you know, be pursuing this? Like, right. why me? Like what, what brought me here? So I would say that's probably like the biggest thing I'm trying to like get over right now, I would say in terms of like struggle. Has anything been helping? Um, I'd say like trying to like, I guess the idea, like we had talked about this, but like kind of trying to reflect on my past a little bit, trying to like think about like the last four, last, I guess, five years at this point, you know, what brought me to this point and the different things that I've done that have helped me develop a skill set to handle the ups and downs and the rigors and the hardships and the highs and lows of med school and, but to end whatever would come after that, I guess. So I guess that's helping knowing that I, have put in the work in the past to to get to this point and that I am deserving but at the same time it's like it's definitely tough to wrap your head around it like this is your career you're going to start it and it's something that's like entirely dependent on you like helping other people like heal and you know improve not just their physical state of health but the way they perceive their health and it seems daunting and you know but hopefully like you know reflecting the past and and me building that chronology of the things that I've done can kind of help me gain some control over what's to come in the future. Right. Yeah. 
I'm glad you brought it up. And it's, I mean, this is a recurring theme. You're not the first one to say this, uh, even on the podcast in uh, alone. But it's amazing how someone as accomplished as yourself, someone who has been selected to be one of the few doctor doctors in an NIH funded program in UC Davis, um, that's amazing. But it's amazing how it's even more amazing to me that no matter how high you go, you still feel these, you still feel these sensations of, man, I think someone else is a better fit for the job or 100%. Yeah, like I see my colleagues. Yeah. I mean, Steve is really good at that. But Steve didn't get into medical school. I wonder if Steve should have my seat. Right. Oh, I think about that all the time. Exactly. And I, and I'm glad that you're talking about it so openly because then I'll show, I'll share with you a project that I'm working on. That's kind of in the same vein, but I think that one of the biggest obstacles we have as a culture is to create a space an almost echo chamber of sorts where we nullify or we nip imposter syndrome, like right at the bud. If any, cause I mean, I've, I've had many friends and students talk to me about this and the second they open their mouth, it goes, I don't deserve. And then I think at that second, my dream would be to have a culture where everyone around you interrupts you and says, stop. And like stops yeah. your train of thought, like right there. Right. And I think this is what, I mean, this is the, one of the most important things that I want to discuss today but this concept of a locus of control. And I think a lot of times we feel like a lot of things are out of our control. We're either lucky or we're unlucky or something happened that gives us the benefit of the doubt or something happened that, uh, that, that let us get away with something, right? And I think bringing that locus of control to say, I'm responsible for everything in my life, whether it's the good or the bad. Like my studying is why I got an A, not something else. But also my lack of studying is the same reason I got an F, right? Or my hard work got me into UCLA. It was not the color of my skin, for example. That is a big one that I see with a lot of underserved students, underserved uh, students that I work with. It's this externalized locus control that says in their mind, the only reason I'm here is because I need to fulfill a quota. And I think that that is such a negative, devastating line of thought in my dream. And I hope this is like on my tombstone is that we create a culture where all of that gets stopped immediately. So I'm glad that you brought that up and we'll talk a little bit more about it with your project with the Education Innovation and Learning Center in the LS. But um, yes, 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 yes. So why don't we just transition to that? So Daraj, you were involved with SEALS. SEALS stands for, or C-E-I-L-S, stands for the Center for Education, Innovation, and Learning in the Life Sciences. And you published a piece, at least a poster, um, when I read the, uh, the media report, but it sounds like it's, it's evolved into a paper now. Uh, it was titled Enhancing Motivational Predictors of Student Success in the Life Sciences. Is this the same project that you published or is this a different one? It is the same project, although I do think the title changed since then because that was presented like a year, a year and a half ago, uh, January 2019 at the Sabre West Conference at UC Irvine. And we have since uh, changed that. 
title um, to match more of what we did, but it's very similar. Um, it's very, uh, pretty much the same data. We obviously have to do a little bit more once you got the reviewer comments back, but, but yeah, that was something I was involved with, involved with starting, I would say March, 2018. And it took up until I would say like a couple months ago to get this thing published. So wow. research is long and daunting, but it's also really fun and rewarding once you get to that point. So for all yeah. you out yeah. there who might be listening, who, you know, might not like your lab environment or think that they'll maybe, okay, lab environment can be a, a definitely like a bad thing and it's a good thing to identify that. But maybe if you don't see the significance of the research that you're doing, or if you're kind of like thinking like, oh, I'm going in a lab or whatever research project that I'm doing and it seems kind of boring on my day to day, just try to think of the big picture. It's not that easy. And I can tell you this as someone that loves research. I get that. I get those feelings all the time. But always try to think about the long game because there is something valuable that will come of this web and you're, and you will be responsible for that. So good on you for, for, for trudging on. Sticking with it. I love that. So walk me through, walk me through how you got uh, interested in education work and then let's transition to the actual project itself. I'd love to hear a little bit more about it. Yeah. I have to, Re rethink in my mind a little bit because I kind of tuned that out of my mind after like I we, we published and everything but it will come back to me as we talk um but um but yeah I got involved with this so I started out so I've always liked teaching so that was something that I, I wanted to be a part of my career whether or not I was in medicine or not um so I first joined the learning assistant program at UCLA which is just like uh, a program that has since grown a lot um, right. from what I understand. It's like a really, really big program. And there's like an army of learning assistants at UCLA. And if you're at UCLA, get involved. It's great. And if you're at, if you're not at UCLA, find out if your school has it. It's a great opportunity for you to get involved with teaching um, and mentorship of some kind and leadership skills, because you're going to learn a lot about yourself as you try to help other people learn, which I think is a great thing. Um, so I got involved with that. That program was designed for you to help facilitate learning in a undergraduate life science course that you had already taken. And now I think that it has since expanded beyond life sciences to like physics and chemistry and potentially the math department might be getting involved too. I don't know. Rumors are out there. But um, yeah, I started there and it was a great experience for me. I did that for two quarters um, to, uh, for the LS7A course at UCLA, which is all molecular biology, um, all things molecular biology, which was really fun. Um, and then after that, um, after two quarters of that, so fall 2017, winter 2018, then spring 2018, I transitioned over to uh, partially because it was a paid position, partially because it was a way to get one more because it was a way to get more one on one interaction with students was to join the life sciences core peer learning facilitator program. Michael, I believe you were in the AAP PLF program. So yeah, two separate programs here, but yeah. they do basically run through different departments at UCLA, but ultimately with the same goal of facilitating peer learning, where the student mentors or teachers aren't necessarily just giving away answers to students, but having them collaborate with other students in the 20 person group that you might have three, three separate times per week or whatever the schedule is. Um, you facilitate learning among those students. You have work, you design worksheets for them. You try to answer their questions with your own questions so they come to conclusions on their own um, and to kind of establish a dialogue and rapport and kind of a, a mentorship, a mentor-mentee relationship that isn't one-sided. It's something where students can come to you for help 
and potentially correct you if you're not entirely accurate with your advice, which is something that I think both of us were always open to um, in terms of our teaching styles, which I think is something that's essential to any kind of individual that wants to teach is being, being willing to take feedback and not be discouraged by the feedback, but be encouraged by it because at least these individuals and these students care enough about the course to write something critical about it. So right. I think that's, yeah. I think that's something that is valuable as a teacher. And that's something that I gleaned a lot from, but well, I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but after that, after spring 2018, or start actually kind of in that spring quarter of 2018, um, the, the, the lecturer and professor that I had um, been a learning assistant for in the fall of 2017, Jeff Malloy, um, I had known that he was involved with higher education research. He was doing like a postdoc in education research at UCLA in the life sciences. So I reached out to him that spring quarter of 2018 about potentially learning more about what education research entails, because I, one, I, I love research. And two, because UCLA prides itself a lot on, especially in the life sciences, on evidence-based teaching. What does the data say about the best inclusive teaching practices in the life sciences and in STEM overall? And because of that, I wanted to learn where these inclusive and evidence-based practices came from. Where does that evidence come from? So I kind of reached out to Jeff Malloy. He um, gave, we met, I, we met like early, at, like late March, something like that. Can't really remember right now, but very early in spring quarter of 2018. And we just kind of talked about how uh, he could have, he had the bandwidth potentially for me to pick a project on my own, um, you know, scour the entire, scour as much of the broad field of higher education literature and STEM that's out there and maybe try to come up with something that we could design an intervention for to run in one of his summer classes in an upper division genetics course. Mm. So, so yeah, starting from there, I kind of just started delving in. I just jumped in. He gave me some resources to start with about inclusive teaching practices. And I kind of went from there and I kind of got the growth mindset and locus of control angle, um, mainly because I had heard about those concepts before, but I heard, I had heard a lot about growth mindset. Growth mindset is something that you talk a lot, that you learn about when you're joining the learning assistant program. And it's something that you try to practice and implement as a peer learning facilitator, as a learning assistant. And it's something mm -hmm. that you try to um, practice yourself as a student. And just for those of, it's a term that the people out there who, who listen to this might have heard, but just to quickly discuss it or define it, um, the growth, a growth mindset is basically the belief that your intelligence is malleable and can be developed and grown and, and be improved over time. And that you don't have what is called a fixed mindset or the idea that your intelligence is um, static and fixed and can't be developed. It's kind of like a lot of people liken it to, you know, potentially playing a sport or playing an instrument or lifting weights. It's like when you do weight, when you lift a weight or something, if you, you know, do bicep curls or something like that, you know, the weight on your, on your arms is meant to challenge you and it's meant to be resistance and you, by you perse persevering through and, you know, kind of, it, you might be really weak initially, but as you develop it and work on it over time, your muscle grows and expands and gets stronger. And the idea is to think of your brain as a muscle. The idea that your brain and Michael as a neuroscience major and aficionado, you can probably attest to this and add more detail, but the idea is that by challenging your brain and persisting with struggles that you have in the classroom intellectually, your brain develops more connections. And that's something that has been shown and in multiple studies that there is evidence that your brain builds more connections, you get stronger like a muscle does over time. So that's what a growth mindset would refer to. 
And a locus of control, like Michael mentioned earlier, um, is the extent to which you believe internal or external forces have control over the events and outcomes in your life. So somebody that has an internal locus of control would believe that they, they themselves have control over the outcomes of the events in their life. Whereas somebody with an external locus of control would, control would believe that outside forces beyond what I can internally control have exclusive control over the outcomes of the events in my life. Um, so that, those, those are just some quick definitions to throw in there. And that's how to wrap up this long rambling story of how I got involved with it. Mm. Yeah, I love, there's a, there's a lot of nuggets in there and I want to delve into those. One, to give you a break because I'm sure you're, you're, you're gassed from, from that uh, long spiel. But two, but also to, to just highlight some things that I think that I really envy about Duraj um, and, and there's some of the qualities that he's exemplified over the years. And so a couple of things. The first thing that comes to mind is Jeff Malloy is a very nice guy. I, uh, yes, had the pleasure I love of, Jeff Malloy. Yeah, I've had the pleasure of working with him when I became a PLF myself for AAP, also for LS7A. Um, I remember we were teaching the same subject uh, just in different departments. Um, so it was always interesting to have the opportunity to, with you, but also with Jeff Malloy, to ask him about difficult concepts that um, he has to teach and as a corollary or as a, something downstream that we have to teach to our students or convey. Um, and it was always a pleasure working with him. I always felt like he um, gave me the attention more attention than I ever had deserved. So number one, Jeff Malloy, thanks for being a great mentor. Number two, the mentor-mentee relationship is interesting in the PLF uh, atmosphere. You kind of touched on this, how it's more of a two-way street. And actually within AAP, we called it a mentor-mentor relationship, which I really enjoy. Yeah, yeah, I like that too. I like that a lot. Yeah, so, and I definitely felt the exact same way as you're, you're mentioning, not only in academics, um, I would definitely get some molecular bio things wrong and there would be someone else more well studied than me that was happy to correct me for the benefit of myself and the other peers in the group, but also learning about other things, right? I happened to just be good at molecular biology. That's why I had the position, but other people within my um, peer groups were really good at other things. Um, from basketball to music. And we always had a space where they could share those things and we all learned from each other. And I really enjoyed that type of learning where uh, it's not like a, it's not like a banker deposit. It's not like you're, you're going to a bank and depositing 10,000 units worth of money. It's more like a conversation between two people sharing their strengths. You might be good at PCR. I might be good at uh, reverse transcription. Right. And together we can get pretty good at both of those things. There's not one person that's the best at everything and it's not a deposit, but rather a, a almost a bartering, a sharing of resources. And that's why I really enjoyed that instructional experience. And, um, it's, it's the inspiration for a lot of the things that I do today, mentorship wise. Um, I always try to commute, create communities that can self-sustain um, that can take on a new person and, um, and adapt them and adopt them, um, one, but also two, take what that person's good at and share it with the rest of the community. I think that's how we escalate as a, as a culture and as a group.
The third thing, and I think arguably the most important thing that I want to highlight is uh, Diraj's infinite curiosity. He's always been a guy that loved to ask questions. I mean, this is why this guy is going to spend four years of his training in a lab studying some of the toughest questions in science today. But it, I think it goes to show that he had always heard about um, evidence-based learning, right? And I have, I've heard the same thing. I he I've heard that UCLA really prides itself on this, but for my untrained uh, heathen ears, I never paid any interest to it because I didn't think that it was that important. I was like, great, you, you teach people based on evidence. Great, I, I'm glad to learn based on evidence. But what Daraj did was he was curious. He asked, huh, evidence is a very general word. I kind of want to see the evidence. And not only did he see the evidence with a, a shared mentor of ours, Jeff Malloy, he went ahead and took the initiative to create his own evidence with his own studies of internal locuses of control and whatnot. And that's something that I've always really, really envied in Daraj. I uh, have a mindset sometimes where I see things as a means to an end. Uh, sometimes I do things just because I know it gets me to the next step. And it's a mindset that is very detrimental because I end up spending time on things that I don't truly enjoy. Uh, I'm really just looking for the result. And oftentimes the result doesn't come because I don't enjoy the thing that I'm doing. But Daraj has never really been that way. He's always followed things that he really enjoys. And it's clear here that he was curious and he found a mentor out of near thin air, right? To pursue a question that he had. And after a year and a half of diligent hard work on a question, um, he figured out a couple of things. And that's kind of like what I want to transition into the subject matter of that um, talk. But before that, I just wanted to highlight that uh, that is something that we need more of. And I think that is something that would benefit a lot of people listening to this podcast. It's the idea that your curiosity is never unfounded. It's never a bad idea to go searching for more answers if you're truly curious and you truly enjoy what you're looking for. As a corollary, it's not a bad idea to do things that you enjoy if they're not quote unquote related to medicine, right? One of the most inspiring things that I've done as, uh, at, as an undergrad at UCLA was referee intramural, intramural basketball. I did this from 7 p.m. to 12 a.m. on some of my longest nights during sophomore and junior year. And a lot of people were, uh, were, were rightfully confused, right? I had, oh, I had come to them like really tired and, and whatnot, but, um, they saw easily intramural refereeing as an opportunity to get, get me some sleep, right? Get me some hours back in my day. Um, but they never, I think they never really understood how much I enjoyed it. And I think that this is a lesson for anyone who's listening, student or otherwise. Do really look for things and do things that you enjoy because one, you're going to get a better result. And two, I mean, and people really optimize for results. So yeah, you're going to get a better result. And two, there's just too little time to spend on things that you don't enjoy. And as I've grown older and more experienced and I've interviewed more and more people, that seems to ring true across every discipline and every domain and every circumstance. 
So Diraj, let's transition into that project because I'm actually really curious. I couldn't find the transcript probably because uh, the title changed, but um, I'd be curious to see, to, to hear your take on your research question and what you found out. Yeah, absolutely. And I do, I wanted to, to add on really quickly to something that you just said. You said you were saying something about um, doing the things that you like. And I think that's something that I hope that if there's one takeaway that I would hope people to get from my visit to Michael's wonderful podcast is to always do the things that you like in an undergrad because undergrad's a very great, it's a very unique time. And it's a time where it's, that's going to go by really quickly. And it's, it's something that you don't want to like have any regrets about in terms of like, I wish I did this. I wish I did that. You are going to have some regrets, but to minimize that, really just try to find the things that you love to do and the things that you want to invest yourself in because work is a lot work feels a lot less like work when you're having fun and find the things that are fun find the things that are enjoyable to you and don't do things just because they check the box if they happen to check the box then they check the box but i think that's something that i always try to do for myself i always try to find activities that i thought would be something that i could really sink my teeth into which is why i never tried to stretch myself too wide which can be a good thing for some people if you're if you get a, if you find joy out of, you know, finding a lot of different orgs or things to do, that's wonderful. But that doesn't mean that you have to do that in order to like, you know, be successful or to go to grad school or professional school or something like that. As long as you can sink your teeth into something super, something that you enjoy for yourself and you're doing it for your own reasons, then I think the sky's the limit and there's really nothing wrong with that and nothing that can go wrong for you. So just wanted to add that on before I jump into the rest of my, my spiel. Right. I 100% agree. So yeah, let's hear a little bit more about that project. Yeah. So um, this uh, study is published in the Journal of Microbiology Education, JMB, J-M-B-E. Um, this is a open access journal, part of ASM Microbiology, which is a larger, is part of, is ASM is the American Society for Microbiology. They're this big or large organization that is involved with inclusive teaching practices in microbiology and overall STEM and life science education, as well as anything related to microbiology research. So this is where the study's published. And because it's open access, Michael, you maybe you can explain this more later if we have time, but it should be free for you to, to, to read. But if you, for some reason, can't access it, you have my Twitter, just DM me if you find me and you can, I'll, I'm more than happy to like email you this for free. Sounds um, good. So this is, the title of this is called M-Locus, M-Locus, a scalable intervention enhances growth mindset and internal locus of control in undergraduate students in STEM. And I want to give a shout out to all of the other authors on this, um, Jennifer Burden Lozano, Lozano, who is part of the Center for Education Assess Educational Assessment at UCLA, who was incredible with the quantitative metric evaluation for our study, Selena Hahn who is a year younger than us and has just graduated from UCLA and is off to PA school. So congrats to her. She is another undergrad that joined our team um, because she was also interested in this sort of research. And then Carlos Herrera. Carlos Herrera is a, another undergrad at UCLA that just graduated, who also joined our team, who was wonderful. Um, Hannah Wang Saison, she is another Center for Education, Center for Educational Assessment um, person at uh, UCLA. She's wonderful. She was great for the data analysis. I'm a Mark Levis Fitzgerald. Mark is the director of the Center for Educational Assessment. Without his resources, we would be nowhere. 
and he graciously um, served it, helped us out with giving us resources and people to work with and the space to do our work and offered great guidance. And then of course, Jeff Malloy, who is the PI of this study, a co-PI for this study, but and the, I would say the corresponding author for this study. He is a wonderful mentor and teacher and advocate for students. And I could not recommend his class um, any higher um, in the LS core department. But, um, but yeah, so this study was, um, this study was kind of designed to see how a enhancing a, or promoting a growth mindset and internal locus of control in an undergraduate life science students could benefit them. And if this intervention actually had a, if this intervention actually worked. So I guess the, the, the backstory to this is that when it comes to um, students' beliefs and the way they perceive their academic ability in the, in the higher education literature has shown to be very, very important for um, positive outcomes for student learning, whether it's grades, whether it's retention in STEM, um, whether it's just improved grit and motivation, those are all things that have shown to be impacted by uh, positive student self-beliefs regarding in, re in relation to their own intelligence and ability in the classroom. So the thing is, a lot of these interventions in the past have specifically targeted only promoting a growth mindset or only promoting an internal locus of control. But there has yet to be an intervention to date up until the one that we designed that combined both of those constructs together to promote both a growth mindset and an internal locus of control to see if they have a synergistic effect on improving student self-beliefs about their um, intelligence and ability in a positive way academically. So um, in order to do that, I scoured the higher education literature um, with plenty of help from Jeff, with plenty of help from Selena and Carlos and everybody that was involved with our study. Um, and we designed this intervention, this five-part intervention that was really, or I would say three, depend, depending on the quarter, or if it was a summer, summer course versus a, um, a proper um, academic term course, like a proper 10-week course. Um, we either had a three-part intervention or a five-part intervention respectively. And that intervention was basically designed to teach students what a growth mindset was and the benefits of a growth mindset and over a fixed mindset, teach students about what an internal locus of control was and how it's more beneficial than an external locus of control, and then eventually try to help students synthesize both of those constructs together to benefit them and how that could benefit them in the classroom. And we delivered this intervention entirely online through the format of videos that we found online or videos that we would record. Um, and on top of that, we also had students do certain reflection questions where they would answer questions about what they saw in the video and how that pertains to their academic abilities and their self-beliefs, whether it's relation to the mindset portion or the locus of control portion. And we also had students advise hypothetical um, case studies where students would basically read a blurb or an excerpt from a hypothetical student who was not doing so hot in a particular class and had a particular um, set of issues with what was going on with their academic performance at the time in the course. And we asked students to using the construct that you learned about that week, whether it was mindset, whether it was locus of control, to give students um, advice about how to rectify their situation, how to best improve their situation 
um, based on the information that they learned about growth mindset or an internal locus of control in the videos that we provided them and through their responses to those reflection questions. And then finally, the last part of the intervention was students would basically um, synthesize the benefits of a growth mindset and an internal locus of control to advise hypothetical students to um, self-rate themselves on a scale of zero to 10, zero being completely internal locus of control, 10 being completely external locus of control, um, on a scale of one to 10 where they fell for locus of control and where they fell for um, a growth mindset. Um, so zero being a completely fixed mindset and a 10 being a perfectly um, growth mindset. And we had students do this before the course and after the course to kind of see their shifts over time after as they went through this intervention, as they learned this material, as they hopefully incorporated it into their studying strategies and their test taking strategies. And yeah, so we, we also had um, other predictors um, that we um, did some, but no, I, I don't wanna get too into the details of the statistical analysis that we did, but we had some, we did some reliability analysis and some factor analysis to, to look at other um, quantitative metrics and con quantitative constructs to evaluate student shifts in their perceptions of their intelligence and ability in the classroom from before the course to after the course as well. Mm. So we had kind of a, um, we also, we, this paper actually um, specifically focuses on the quantitative data that we, that we gleaned, but we actually have a ton of qualitative data that we haven't even like scratched the surface on. So we can, we're really hoping to publish like multiple papers from this. And um, just the last thing before I hand it back over to Michael, um, we implemented this in all um, undergraduate life science courses at UCLA. And this was implemented in eight different um, courses. Um, so there were, there were eight different biology courses in which, eight different biology section lectures that we implemented this in across all three um, life science courses at UCLA from LS7A to LS7C. And I believe LS104 as well, which is the genetics course. And every student that took that class was involved with it, unless they chose to opt out of it, of course, which was completely fine. Um, but yeah, we tried to, we were able to, we got, a, I want to give a big shout out to the, um, to the lecturers and the professors in LS Core who were so kind and gracious to allow us to run this intervention um, among, with their students. And, um, and yeah, that's how we were really able to do it because, you know, LS Core and SEALs have such a great um, framework and structure in place for these sorts of things to, to happen. Right. Yeah, I'm reading this paper. I'm looking at the, the quantitative results and they're pretty impressive. Uh, let's, let's get into some of the more pertinent details. Something, let's say we had a freshman going into college, didn't take AP biology in high school and is really, uh, and, and really has his or her own self doubts about, um, his or her own ability to, to handle the rigor of college, especially the rigor of a introductory biology course where three to 900 other students are taking right? That can be kind of a frightening thing. And uh, it is certainly a reality in a lot of UCLA public school courses. So based on your results from the study, um, what interventions or what would you suggest? Let's start from the beginning, actually. For a person that does not have a growth mindset and an internal locus of control, what are some of the thoughts that they have about themselves um, what are some of the things that they might say 
or think uh, just so that we can kind of resonate with some people listening to show that the things that you're thinking, you're probably not alone in thinking those thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is, it's funny you bring that up because that, that those thoughts that this, that type of student would have is something that we actually incorporate into the hypothetical case studies that we have students respond to and give advice to students about who hypothetically are having those thoughts, but not so hypothetically, there are students that are, that are out there that do feel that way, especially, right. you know, if and what would they think? They have, so they would, they would think something along the lines of, I am completely helpless in my situation. Mm. I have no ability. Like, I don't know how I'm going to improve my, my standing in the course. I just feel like I can't learn any of this material. It's just, right. I'm unable. I just don't know how I can, you know, do better in learning how, you know, voltage gated ion channels work in the cells in, inside cells. Yeah. I just don't understand it. Right. And they would also, that's kind of the, the fixed mindset. And right. some of the, the external locus would be, well, I mean, I studied as hard as I could. I did what I thought I was doing. I took the test and, you know, I did really bad on the test. And I just think that this test is against me. I just think that the test was completely mm -hmm. unfair. And right. that's kind of the, um, the external idea, right? The that's external idea. Yeah, that's a good one. The test is against me. I've heard that one a million times. Another one yeah, that I've heard um, that you might recognize is it's just my professor's fault. I think that's one that I hear a lot with students where they're just like, oh, my, prof my professor's just bad. Uh, I did as best as I could, but there's, there's no beating this professor. I think that's a, a very classic external locus of control as well. Um, other fixed mindset ones that I've heard, perhaps something along the lines of, and correct me if I'm wrong, if it's like external locus versus fixed mindset, but just some quotes that I hear tossed around a lot is like, oh, I didn't take biology in college or, um, oh, I, don't, I actually heard this one and this one surprised me. Uh, I, don't have a, I don't have a tutor um, for biology, right? So I can't do well. A lot of those things that have been kind yeah, of hearing. Yeah, that's a, that's a really, uh, that's one that I haven't personally heard, but that's something that it, the concepts are there for what we are trying to identify and help students like come out of hopefully with this intervention. Right. And what was the intervention? I know that I saw that you, you um, have a table of four YouTube videos, but why don't you uh, summarize some of the key concepts that those videos um, try to convey? I saw that one video was on neuroplasticity, so that's cool. Um, yes. Let's talk about the intervention. What's, how did you change students' ideas? So how we designed this was a lot of intervention. We our goal for this intervention wasn't to reinvent the wheel. There were, there are already a ton of resources out there and there's a ton of body of literature. There's a huge body of literature out there for different resources that we can use. So we, and growth mindset is something that has been studied extensively. We're not defining anything new here. This is Carol Dweck and her years and years of amazing work on this that people are now yeah. benefiting from. Angela um, Duckworth. Right, right. Angela Duckworth is huge. Um, there's another guy, Daniel something, I forgot. Um, Kahneman. Uh, what's that? Kahneman is an economist. Maybe not Daniel Kahneman. Not probably not him. It's something. It's something else. But um, but yeah, the we didn't try to reinvent the wheel. We tried to use resources that were out there. We used Khan Academy videos. We used videos that we found on YouTube. Videos from a um, this online growth mindset data bank resource center that was established through Carol Dweck's group, I think. 
at Stanford. Mm. It's affiliated with Stanford. And these are basically videos that are designed to just past interventions have just simply taught students these concepts. You know, what is growth mindset? What is an internal locus of control? So we were just trying to help students learn those concepts. And mm. then there's a learning acquisition phase. And then there's a concept application phase. And that concept application phase was where we had students do those case studies where mm. there's a quote, they're going to read a quote from a hypothetical student that has a fixed mindset and an internal locus of control. And right. they're going to talk about a particular issue that they have in the course. And now the job of the student through their, this completely online intervention um, deployed on our online learning system at UCLA CCLE, they, um, they just type out the response to how they would help that student um, improve their situation. So right. we have this concept um, delivery phase and then a concept application phase to help students learn about what about these these concepts these from mindset to locus of control and then have students apply them to their own to their own unique situations and then to other hypothetical student situations and then eventually we had students in the final part of the intervention synthesize both of those constructs together to advise hypothetical students and then also rate themselves on a scale of zero to ten right so what would a sample quote be that I would have to advise a student for? So I don't have the exact intervention materials in front of me, but I can read you um, from our paper, our little, we have a little two by two table that describes the different, um, the spectrum of which students can fall on if they have different, a, different, a particular type of mindset and a particular type of locus of control. So mm. I think we'll, we use like that broad construct in this quote that I'm about to tell you and we, expand that to a life science education setting. Um, so an example of a student that, let's say they were taking a introductory molecular biology class, they might say something along the lines of, that exam was completely unfair. I'm not some kind of biology whiz who can learn beyond the things that we do in the class. So that's a student that would have a fixed mindset and an external locus of control. And we would kind of riff off of that a little bit and talk about, oh, I tried to, you know, study really, really hard about voltage-gated ion channels, but the exam was completely unfair. Like, it just asked me about, it didn't ask me about the different parts of how a voltage-gated ion channel works. It asked me about these weird mutations that would happen in a voltage-gated ion channel protein, and then it asked me to talk about what would happen next in this particular cell system because of that, or what would happen to the calcium ion flux in this cell. So I didn't know, I didn't realize that the exam was gonna ask me that. That's just completely unfair. That's not something that we had even talked about in class. So that's an example of something that we might, um, we, that we would include in our intervention materials for a hypothetical case study. Right, right. Yeah, I can see how valuable that is because these types of interactions happen um, daily, at least within the PLF context. Uh, we, I mean, I, this is where I'm hearing all these quotes from. Some of the students just go up to me and they have a poor exam performance and it's never their fault, you know? And I think that if there's one thing that I learned from this paper and from reading the works of Carol Dweck and Angela Duckworth, and I think maybe you're talking about Dan Pink. Um, Potentially, I'll look it up. Yeah, uh, it, it's, that, it's that the more agency you believe you have uh, the more self-fulfilling the prophecy almost becomes the more you believe you can impact your grades 
your life, your fitness even, the more that becomes true. The less you become, I mean, the less you believe you have control of your grades, your life and your fitness, the more that becomes true as well. It reminds me of a quote from Ford, Henry Ford, I think. And it's whether you think you're right or you're wrong, you're right, right? And I think that I think that one of the biggest improvements I've made in the last four years, and I, and I attribute my relative success to it, is the ability to take back the ball and bring it back on my court. And if anything good has happened in my life, it was because of me. But if anything bad has happened in my life, it was also because of me. And that has been infinitely valuable because then you can act on it, right? You can do things to change parts of your life and make improvements. But if things are out of your control, if it's just because of luck or for one factor that you can't control or another, then there's nothing you can ever do about it. And that is infinitely frustrating. So thank you for doing that work. It's very interesting that it was done in a context that I um, am familiar with and I'll have to go back and read the paper in its entirety. But that I think at the very least, that's the takeaway. To try and start understanding these concepts and moving your mind in a way that reflects those concepts so that you have more agency in your own life and you're not kind of like pushed and pulled by the winds and the tides. Yeah, that's certainly a big takeaway of the paper. And I think one thing, one last point about this paper that I want to make sure that I get the point across is that a big component of what we were trying to achieve here is that retention rates in STEM have historically been really low for underrepresented minority students, URMs, for women in STEM, for um, first-generation students as well, uh, first-generation college students. So a, a big portion of the study was to evaluate the effects that our intervention had on URM versus non-URM students, um, um, females versus males in, in, step, in these classes, as well as first-gen versus non-first-gen students um, in these courses. And what we saw was that when we did this baseline evaluation before we did the intervention of where URM versus non-URM students and so forth stood um, in terms of their baseline levels of locus of control and mindset, we saw that non-URM students, non-first-gen students, and males all had higher levels of growth mindset and an internal locus of control compared to their counterparts. But by the end of the intervention, when we had students, and that was in, those differences were statistically significant. And by the end of the intervention, when we had students, again, when we took their, the measurements again, quantitatively of their mindset and locus of control, those gaps had all closed. We had closed those gaps and students- Very interesting. And that difference was no longer statistically significant. So I think that's a big thing that I wanna like make sure people have a takeaway on is that this intervention definitely plays has, see, has shown a lot of promise in helping um, historically um, marginalized demographic groups in STEM. I love that. I love that conclusion. That is one big step forward that we can take for, to, to close the education gap. And it's something that's really accessible to all of us. All these modules are free. This paper is free to read your mindset and your own self-development is free to work on. Uh, it's only you. That is the only factor in the equation. And if you can kind of figure that out, it looks like there are big benefits at the end of that rainbow. Yeah. So Diraj, 
There are a couple of questions as we wrap up that I want to pick your brain on. Um, I think a couple of them are pretty fun because uh, they show that you aren't just the research god that you are, but you're. Uh, <laughs> I won't even call myself a research god. My god. But you're a Stephen A. Smith fan. I am. I love the burner account on Twitter. All right, the first question is, what purchase of $100 or less has most positively impacted your life in the last six months? In the last six months? Well, I haven't had a lot of spending in the last six months um, for relatively obvious reasons at this point as we reflect on our pandemic past, present, and future. But right, but actually, I would... a lot of people got their stimulus checks and spent it like wildfire. So. Yeah, so I did not get a stimulus check because of my fin- f- because of my current living situation, um, but um, I would say, oh, this is tough. I would probably say, actually, I just bought this. Um, I bought a new mouse because I'm trying to. One thing that I didn't have in college was a great setup. Like I never, after my second year of college, I never had a desk, so I'd always be studying on a dining table in my bed. Not great, not great setups. So I now when I as I go to med school, I'm trying to develop a nice ergonomical setup for myself for the next eight years. So I bought myself a really nice Logitech mouse for $99 even. And this has been completely ergonomical for me in like using my computer in a completely different way. It's changed my experience. My wrist doesn't hurt anymore. It's fantastic. I love that. Yeah, man. Uh, My desk is my holy sanctuary. I've been joking with my girlfriend, um, but the, I told her that I don't need anything else. Like we don't need a kitchen. I don't even need a bathroom. <laughs> I can go out. I can go outside. I don't even need too. <laughs> Yeah. All I need is this desk setup. I have this dual monitor setup, this wonderful mic and a uh, uh, pop filter that's attached to the desk. So I can like move it in and out of place. I have Amazon Alexa, which controls the lights actually. So I can change the colors and whatnot. And then I have a nice candle set up to set the mood at night when I'm doing a little bit more creative work. And nice, my, nice. my, I think my, my crown jewel is this, this standing desk by fully. And I oh, absolutely okay. love it. Yeah. F-U-L. I'm looking for a desk. I'm looking for a desk. Okay. It's extremely pricey, but I figured that because I was going to be a lifelong learner, a student of all time. Oh, is this the Jarvis? This is the Jarvis. Yeah. It, it, Dude, it's I was a, looking at this. This is like. I love it. I love it. I love that I stand all day. It like, um, I, I no longer have this back pain because I could never find a computer chair that worked for me. And I, I am also. genetically predisposed to lower back pain. So this is something I might need to invest in. Exactly. And it has a nice standing mat that comes with it. And, um, the, the biggest benefit is that medical school and I mean, even outside of medical school, all students experience long days of studying and it is so easy to fall asleep in a chair. I never fall asleep while I'm standing and I, it has helped me keep out a couple hours every single day, which it really, really adds up. And I'm completely grateful for fully, hopefully fully sponsors. Are, are, yeah. I was like, are you reading a sponsorship here, man? Is that, have we gotten to that point of the pod yet? What? But even even though they do not sponsor the podcast, I am so 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 grateful for the product they've made. And I, I yeah, don't sell out yet. Yeah, not yet. Next week. Next week. Yeah, out. next week. All righty. The next question. It's a bit of a doozy. How has a failure or an apparent failure 
set you up for later success. Do you have a favorite failure of yours? And are you interviewing? Are you interviewing me for med school right now? Because this is like, no, hot, no, I'm hot, not. Like hot, like piece of advice to anyone out there listening. This is the question that you will get on a med school interview, without a yeah. doubt. Like, it's a nice this question. Is, it is a I nice know. question. Now I'm like trying to decide if I want to go into interview mode or if I can like actually just be more casual about it. No, let, let's be real mode. I asked this question because not to get an interview answer, but the, the whole goal is to show people, show students specifically that even if you're a doctor, doctor from UC Davis or a UCLA medical student, you are just as fallible as the rest of us. hundred um, percent. That's why like I'm making that resume of failures and stuff to just really publicize this. But um, yeah, Ooh, I like cool. that. Oh, I, have I talked to you about this yet? No, we haven't. But we can get to that in a second. Let me answer your question, okay. though. Um, I would say a favorite failure of mine. Um, honestly, because my life revolves around research, it's probably something in the lab. Um, I would probably say, oh, gosh. Uh, we <laughs> this, is a, this is something that I wrote about in my apps because it's a really funny story. Um, so... Our lab at UCLA, this is, the, this is the immunology research that I was doing, this autoimmune disease research lab that I was in. Um, and there was a period, in our, so our lab is, eventually became really, really small, like very small group of personnel in our lab. Eventually became me, one other, other, me, another undergrad, and then a visiting scholar from China. And there was a study that had been in the works for a long time before I had even joined the lab. And the lead, the lead author on that study left our lab just as we started getting reviewer comments back. Mm. And he had left because he got a new grant at another institution. I can't remember where, but because of that, I was kind of like my PI just like showed Dr. Singh, shout out to him. He showed up um, in their, in our little office area in our lab and was like, Hey, do you want to analyze some data for me? And I was like, um, sure, I guess. And this is back when I was like, I knew very little about the overall work that we actually did in the lab. I was just doing it. Mm-hmm. And he was like, all right, I need you to analyze this flow cytometry data for me. And I was like, what on earth is flow cytometry? Right. And I looked at the data. I had no idea what I was looking at. I had to learn, teach myself. Um, eventually recruited the undergrad, other undergrad to help me. We had to like sit with my PI, design new experiments because it was, the paper was rife with issues. The, the reviewers trashed the crap out of the paper. Mm-hmm. So I had to learn how to do like magnetic cell sorting, how to culture cells in vitro overnight how to basically do a number of things that I had never done in the lab before and eventually prepare single cell suspensions for flow cytometry. Mm. And in hindsight, all those things are actually not very difficult to do, but I had, I failed repeatedly over and over and over again, just to identify the new type of T cell that we were trying to look for. And it took weeks for me to like actually get my protocol down because the previous um, lead author didn't have like a established protocol written down. It was basically data that was in his lab notebook, but there was no actual protocol written down anywhere. So I had to like get on the phone with him, talk to him about how I was gonna run these experiments, the exact like formulations of the different buffers that we were gonna use of the different Mm. cell culture medias. And it was failure after failure, it was dead cells after dead cells. And I would say like, I had like a collection of favorite failures in the lab during that summer. This was the summer of 2018 before my senior year, where I failed relentlessly in the lab. But eventually I had one, we got one good data point after one good data point, one good experiment after one good experiment, you know, they kind of snowball on top of you once you actually, once I actually like took the time to troubleshoot and reflect 
and develop some, you know, metacognitive control, I would say, if I were to use some psych terms here about right. what I was doing in the lab. Right. So that was probably my favorite failure. And that definitely reinforced how much I loved research without a doubt and how much I love the immune system in particular. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love that story because one, there's a happy ending and I'm a sucker for happy endings. And two, because it just shows that, I mean, there's opportunities everywhere. We turn down a lot of things because we think that we're not ready, but we're never going to be ready. And you kind of like learn through action. You learn through falling. And I think you should count the times that you get up, not the amount of times that you fall down. Because at the end of all that falling is just a little bit of learning. And that little bit of learning opens the door to the next bit of learning. And sooner or later, you realize you look back, you have scars all over your knees, but you have something that you're really proud of. And I think that a lot of students stop just one fall too short or two falls too short. They just need to hang on just a little bit because the gold is right on the other end of that next fall. But I get it. It's, it's, it's hard to continue failing. I mean, no one likes losing. Humans have an aversion to losing. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, we'll transition to the next question. If you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, metaphorically speaking, getting a message out to billions of people, what would it say and why? It could be a few words. It could be a paragraph. It could be someone else's quote that you live by. What would you want to tell the world? It's going to be some like Hollywood wisdom right here. Some like feel good stuff, probably some like Hallmark card stuff. But uh, I probably just say be yourself. Like the billboard would probably just say be yourself because it's too exhausting to be someone that you're not. And right. we kind of get caught up in that. And sometimes in undergrad, which is why I'm taught, I mentioned earlier, doing the things that you love. Because when you do the things that you love, you're being yourself, you're being who you are, you're being authentic, and it's too exhausting to do anything that isn't that. Right. So right. I would say just be yourself. It's the easiest thing. It's probably the best advice that I got before I started my, inter my interview journey a year ago for med school. It's too exhausting. If the school doesn't want you for who you are, then mm. screw up. It doesn't matter at that point. Right. You know? So, and that ex applies to really anything. Just be yourself. It's too exhausting to do to be anyone other than that. Right. It wouldn't have been a good fit anyway, if yeah. uh, the school didn't want you and you got in by some um, unknowing chance. But I like that a lot. And, and there's one thing that you, you glimpsed over, but I really want to double down on is being yourself is the easiest thing. People yes, always say, yeah, people always are saying, yeah, pre-med, being a student, it's so hard. It is hard. There's a lot to do. There's a lot to do right. It's exhausting. There are long hours. And of course, it's really fulfilling in many ways, in, in ways more than one. But the hardest part of it is not the stuff that you have to do. The hardest part is getting out of your own way, getting out of your own head, trying to be people that you aren't, trying to fit into crowds that you don't belong in, that you don't that you wouldn't benefit from being in that right there, being someone that you are not is the hardest part. And I think being yourself not only is energizing, but it's the easiest thing to do. I always tell people, why are you doing the hard thing? I'm giving you the easy way, do the easy thing. It might require a little bit of front loading on the front end. Um, but 
it is overall easier. And I'll give you an analogy. A lot of students will put off their essay until one or two days before the deadline. That is so difficult. I am unable to stay up on three or four hours of sleep. And those of you that can do it, you guys have a superpower. But yeah, it's a, that's a superpower. But yeah. But it's a superpower that you shouldn't <laughs> exercise because it is a hard thing to do. It tests your willpower. It drains your longevity, right? Do the easy thing. Write me a paragraph the week that it's assigned. Write me a paragraph the week after it's assigned. Write me another paragraph the week after that. And soon you have a rough draft to show a TA a week in advance before it's due. The TA sees it, the TA gives you great comments, and then you finish up the rest in the last week. It's easy. You get to go out on Thursday night like you were planning. You don't have to cancel on your plans. You don't have to text your mom on Friday evening saying that you'll miss another call because you did the easy thing. You wrote the one paragraph during week one instead of doing the extremely hard thing by pulling in the all-nighter, getting a poor grade because this is the first time your TA has ever seen it. And it just baffles me. I think it's a, an issue of perspective and it's an issue of getting started. But once you kind of solve those things, do the easy thing, man. And it really applies when it comes to being yourself. You don't want to, you don't want to wear a blue polo and become a care extender and answer phones at the hospital. Don't do it. No yeah. one says you have to. You want to referee I am basketball from 7 p.m. to 12 a.m. Do it. No one says you had to. Right? I think that is a gem. It is repeated. Cliches are repeated for good reason. It's because a lot of them hold a lot of truth. So think about that. Reflect on it and really kind of ingest on that ingest that message. Because these simple things are the key to being quote unquote your definition of success. So I like that billboard. I'm hoping that more people will understand the messaging behind that um, because it is a powerful one. I do want to quickly add though, I was, I'm by no means a perfect student. I have 100% written essays two, one to two nights before they were due. And I will say as somebody that like enjoys writing and likes to think that I'm like not a bad writer, um, I actually find my most creative moments when I'm up against the deadline. So I don't hate deadlines, right. but it is not the least stressful thing it is, I could have definitely avoided more stress if I had like spaced things out with essays. I did that for exams, not for essays, but I will say there's some creative value to pushing yourself up against a deadline, but don't always do that. Right. But you can always self-impose a deadline, right? Yeah, there you go. To, exactly. Do that. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a deadline that your TA sets for you. You can also set a rough draft meeting with your TA. That is just as frightening. You don't want to show up to a meeting with your TA with nothing and the stakes are much lower if you want to go even lower then set up a date with your significant other or set up a dinner with your friend one or two weeks in advance canceling on that does not feel good and you can only go if you promise yourself you write one paragraph right i'm not asking you to write the whole thing like you would on, on an, an all-nighter situation but i'm asking you to take advantage of a self-imposed deadline so that your future self can live happily and breathe a little bit deeper. So I love that conversation. It's one that a lot of people need to hear. Next question is, what is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you 
love. An absurd, absurd habit or unique or absurd thing that I love. Um, an abs- I would say more of an absurd thing was is probably like, it's probably like soccer memes, to be honest with you. I don't know if it's absurd, but I just like absolutely love, like there's a level to memeage in like American sports, but I feel like European sports, especially like the British football fandom, absolutely tops and exceeds with their banter. <laughs> like I have seen, like the Premier nice. League came back yesterday and I realized the biggest thing that I missed about the Premier League wasn't, I, as much as I missed the sport, it's the memes that I missed the most. Like, without a doubt. So I would say, like, I have this absurd, like, attraction to, like, European soccer memes. Nice, nice. I love that. I love. I always love this question because it gets a whole host of different answers. Oh, yeah. Uh, I doubt it. Yeah. Next question. What advice would you give to a smart, driven, pre-med college student at the beginning of their journey? And what advice should they ignore? Ooh. Um... What advice would I give them? I think it's the theme of maybe what we've been talking about. I guess be yourself, do what you love. Don't be influenced by what your friends are doing around you, what different research gigs your friends are getting, whose lab your friends are in. Just do you, be you. It's the simplest and as Michael said, the easiest thing you can do. And if you are driven, you're going to find opportunities for yourself to be successful and that will check some boxes and may not check some boxes, but will overall benefit you as you develop on your journey toward being a physician um, or applying to med school because if I wasn't myself then I probably wouldn't have the perspective that I have about medicine and what role I might want to play as a I guess double doctor going into medicine at the end of the eight-year journey that I have somehow decided to embark on Um, and then the one piece of advice that I would tell them to ignore I don't know if I have like any advice that I would tell them to ignore because I mean different people can have different can will weigh in differently on your experiences. And maybe maybe this is it right here, I kind of stumbled on it. Different people are gonna tell you different things about how you should, or things that you should do as a pre-med student, or things that you sh- shouldn't do as a pre-med student, but you don't have to listen to everything that those people say. Obvi- you, I guess the advice that you shouldn't listen to is the advice that maybe you don't like. I don't know. Like if the advice, I don't want to, I'm trying to phrase this delicately and in a nuanced way, but not every piece of advice that you're going to get is going to be good advice. So the one piece of advice that I would tell you to ignore is the advice that you think that is so egregiously wrong and antithetical to what your belief system is and what, who you are. If Do you have an sense. example of something that sets off your alarms? Um, I would say anything where like, I have probably been given advice about how I need to like, I have to do like some level of like volunteer tourism or something like that. Like I've heard people say like, oh, it's really good that the so-and-so went to another country to do do some level of medical work for some community out there. And I'm like, that is advice that I would probably not want to follow at all. And that was like one, Having studied global health extensively, as as seeing that I minored in it, medical volunteerism just like sets me off. Like it makes me it like kind of just angers me in a way, um, and it frustrates me. And that's probably one piece of advice that I, I've been given that I have chosen to ignore. 
um, if that makes sense. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. So we're going to wrap up here with the last question. Do you have any final words or any shout outs that you want to give uh, as we wrap up this episode full of full of nuggets of information? I'm really excited to look back into this one and, and pull out some stuff for our audience. Yeah. Um, this is going to be unrelated to medicine or anything that we've talked about entirely, but I just want to say Rob Manfred, the commissioner of baseball, is terrible. And he is killing the sport from his terrible handling of the sign stealing scandal uh, from the Red Sox and the Houston Astros to the fact that he's eating out of the owner's hands as the owners try to basically like bust the players union and engage in absolute malarkey of business practices and their inability to handle the fact that they invested in something risky and now they're not willing to own up to the risk. So I just want to say, Rob Manfred, you suck. Um, That's my shout out in the sports sector because I feel like that's something that's angered me a lot in the past few days. The sport that I grew up playing and loving is now being handled in the worst possible way by business billionaire tycoons who could care less about the sport and about kids who aspire to be these great athletes. So yeah. I'm, I'm glad that we got that one out of you. So yeah. I All right, man. I guess that question became what is bugging you today? But yeah. <laughs> And that works too. Everyone has things that are bugging them and I'm glad you shared it. Uh, Diraj, it has been a pleasure. It's always nice to catch up. You're one of the most well-spoken, most well-spoken. Nice. <laughs> the irony. That's, that's tragic. You're good. You're good. You, you got this. <laughs> one of the most well-spoken folks that I have had the pleasure of knowing. And uh, I have always envied your curiosity and your dedication to yourself above any other thing. And I think that that is definitely the theme of this episode. So it's been a fun time, man. Uh, Thanks for coming on to the show. Thank you, Michael. And I envy you as well for doing this and giving us all a platform. And hopefully this can be of use to other people. And if anybody out there has, you know, advice or feedback on what I've said, I am more than happy to like talk about it because I know that my views are not solid. My views should change and develop over time. And I would love to have a conversation with anybody that reaches out. Um, And I think my contact information on my Twitter feed was given at the beginning of this. So yeah. Right. Yeah. So again, you can find Daraj if you want to say hello, ask a question or ask him how he feels about the uh, MLB commissioner on Twitter at Daraj N30. That's D-H-I. R-A-J-N-3-0. Thank you again for coming on to the show, Daraj. I'll talk to you soon, man. Thanks, Michael. Hey, podcast. Episode's over. Please leave a review and subscribe on Apple and Spotify podcasts. What happens when you do that is a golden goose actually comes to my door with a framed picture of you. I then put that framed picture on my audio listener hall of fame. My team in Vietnam gets a ping and they light a candle there's a moment of silence in pure gratitude because you've committed to joining our team. We then throw the world's largest silent disco party and the funds generated by that party is able to deliver the next podcast episode to your mobile device. It's hard work, but it's honest work. Thank you so much for listening and please DM me on Instagram what you thought about this episode. One last favor, close your eyes and take a deep breath.